0: Please stand for the reading of our scripture today. Sermon text comes from Romans, the third chapter, beginning with the 19th verse. Here the Apostle Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here is the reading of God's word. Lord, I pray that today you would open our hearts and our minds to the wonder of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for uh, Martin Luther, um, Lord, who stood upon your word and who brought uh, once again to light the message of the gospel. And Lord, may the light of the gospel shine in our hearts again today. Remind us, Lord, that it isn't by our works by our efforts, that we're made right with you. But it's by grace, grace through faith and what Jesus has accomplished for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did accomplish everything for us. And I thank you that you still accomplish everything for us that's necessary for us to be made righteous and to stand before you in peace with a clear conscience. It's in Jesus' name we pray that you would speak to us. Amen. You may be seated. So October 31st, October 31st is an important day, and it's not, we're not saying it's an important day because of candy, although I think candy is an important consideration for October 31st. Um, October 31st isn't necessarily important because of trick-or-treating, although I always loved trick-or-treating as a kid. And it's not uh, important necessarily because of Trunk or Treat, although Trunk or Treat is going to be a great time. And I hope you're coming to Trunk or Treat. Wouldn't it be sad if our neighbors came to Trunk or Treat and there weren't very many trunks with uh, candy to get? So please come uh, tonight to Trunk or Treat, even if you can't decorate your trunk. uh, Just come and uh, bring candy. But October 31st is an important day because it's uh, Reformation Day. It's the day in which we commemorate and remember Martin Luther, the monk who nailed his 95 theses, a protest against the Roman Catholic Church and the church's teachings on this door, the castle door in Wittenberg, Germany. And there's a picture up there. It's kind of faded because it turned down the lights a little bit, maybe. So Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and it revolutionized the Western world. Uh, The ideas that Martin Luther wrote completely uh, changed the Western world as we know it today. And he got a little help from something called the printing press. So when his 95 Theses was printed, it went viral. So I guess that would be like one of the first viral things that went out around the Western world was this idea that Martin Luther was, uh, was teaching. So it spread like wildfire and um, it ignited what we call the Protestant Reformation giving birth to the teaching that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. So the Protestant Reformation brought the light of the biblical teaching of how we can be at peace with God how we can have peace with God, knowing that our our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. So I ask you today, are you at peace with God? Do you have peace with God? Now imagine this phone recorded every deed, every one of your, your deeds, every one of your thoughts and everything that you've ever said. If there was a device that could record everything, Everything you've done, everything you've thought, and everything you've said, would you want that device to be made known? Would you want the the images to be shown for everybody to see? No, none of us would. We would want to destroy that device. If this phone recorded every deed, word, and thought, we wouldn't want anybody to know about it. But did you know that God, he knows all? God knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you've said. And he knows everything that you've thought. And we confess that God is omniscient. That is, that God is all-knowing. King David wrote in Psalm 139, he said, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, Nothing is hidden from God. And Luther, he understood this reality. Martin Luther knew that he was a sinner. And he knew that God is righteous and that God judges our our deeds and our words and and our thoughts. And because Martin Luther knew that God is righteous and that God knows all things... He had no peace with God. Luther actually wrote that he hated God. For him, God was a taskmaster that was always judging his deeds, his words, and his thoughts. So with his knowledge of God's righteousness, his perfection, and the and, and, and trusting and believing in the reality that God knows all things, that, he's, that, that nothing is hidden from him. This this caused great terror in Luther's heart. So there's nothing hidden from God. You might be successful hiding something from others. Aren't we great at just kind of presenting ourselves as being really good people? You know, all put together. People might look at me and say, oh, there, there's nothing. He's got a really good life. He's a really good guy. We have a way of putting ourselves together and presenting ourselves to the world as if everything's okay. But nothing is hidden from God. You can't hide anything from Him. He knows all things. And people implicitly understand this reality, at least, normally functioning people understand this reality. People understand this reality because of something called conscience. You have a conscience. You have this internal sense of right and wrong. And, and if you're a normal functioning person, yeah, you see the little devil on the one shoulder and the angel on the other. We all have this sense of right and wrong. And it uh, doesn't matter how... how uh, skilled we are at presenting ourselves as being really great people before others, our consciences bear witness to the reality that we're sinners. We're sinners. So that angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, that internal voice that knows the difference between right and wrong, you have that. You have that. And in Romans 2, 15 through 16, the Apostle Paul writes, "...they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts." Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the Bible is clear. We've been given a conscience by God. And that conscience bears witness and accuses us. And so Luther had this conscience, and this conscience continually accused him. Even those who have no access to a Bible are held accountable under God's law. Why? Because their conscience bears witness to the reality of what is right and what is wrong. It is written on our hearts. You don't need to know the Ten Commandments to know the Ten Commandments. Because the commandments are written right here. Each and every one of us, we have this internal compass or this internal voice that's telling us the difference between right and wrong. So what do I do to appease my guilty conscience? I have this conscience. It's accusing me. So what do I do, apart from Christ, apart from Jesus... To appease my guilty conscience or to ease my conscience or to to cause me to feel better about myself. Well, first of all, I might try with all my strength to be good and devout. So I try with all my strength to be a good person and to be a devout Christian. And I believe that through doing good things and being devout, that I can make myself feel better about myself. But through that I never achieve peace with God. I never achieve peace with myself, and I never achieve peace with others. So apart from Jesus, people will try with all their strength to be good and to be devout. But that cannot, cannot appease a guilty conscience or make us right with God. And Martin Luther tried this. He, he fasted. He said later in life that his his excessive fasting probably permanently ruined his health. And he thought that through fasting, he could become acceptable in God's sight. He slept on the cold ground without a coat or a blanket. He confessed his sins. He would spend hours in the confessional booth. He paid his penance. He went on pilgrimages. But all of his works, all of his devotion never helped his guilty conscience. He still felt this dread before a righteous and a holy God. And we do this also. We do this when we listen to someone say this. You know, if you do something good, you'll feel better about yourself. You know, if you help somebody out, you'll You'll have this, this, uh, this feeling inside that feels really good. And so we do this too. We go out and we do good things in an attempt to try to feel better about ourselves. But it only, it's only temporary. It's only temporary. It's not permanent. So first of all, I try to be good. With all my strength, I try to be good and to be devout. And then number two, I convince myself, well, I'm not as bad as other people. I can always find somebody in the room uh, that, that, uh, that I think I'm better than that person or I'm not as sinful as that person. You can always find somebody and say, they're, they're, they're a bigger sinner than I am. They've done worse things than me. So comparing myself to others who behave badly only produces within me the sense of pride. Well, I'm better than they are. At least I don't do that. And the Bible tells us that pride is bad. Pride is a bad thing. Did you know that pride is one of the seven deadly sins? (laughs) Yeah. And ultimately, it doesn't work because eventually, I'm going to say something or think something that's really not good, and then that, that guilt hits me again. I realize that I am just as bad as everybody else. I'm really not not better than other people because I, too, am a sinner. So I convince myself, uh, well, I'm not as bad as other people, so God must, must accept me because at least I didn't do what he did or I didn't do what she did. This only produces pride and a false sense of security before God. Number three, this is happening a lot. It always has happened. I remove the parts of the Bible that I'm not comfortable with. So if I read something in the Bible that convicts me, just pass it over, pretend it isn't there, ignore it, or maybe I try to reinterpret it and change it so that it says something completely different. So I'll read those parts of the Bible, and the Bible says this or it says that, and I'll say, well, that's old-fashioned. After all, we're living in 2021, and people in 2021, they're smarter than the Bible Nothing new here. We all do it. We try to rid ourselves of the parts of God that we don't like. Did you know that Thomas Jefferson did the same thing? He took a pair of scissors to the Bible and he cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. This is what we now call nothing new, but it's a new term Christian deconstruction. It used to be called apostasy or heresy. But there's nothing new with people deconstructing the faith, taking out the parts they don't like. But what happens when we deconstruct the faith? We end up reconstructing. And any time we deconstruct, we turn to construct something else. And that thing we reconstruct in the place of God's truth is nothing more than an idle fashion to fit our individual or societal preferences. So I try with all my strength to be a good and devout person, but I fail. Try to convince myself I'm not as bad as he is or I'm not as bad as she is, but that fails. And none of us, none of us have the authority to remove the parts of the Bible that we're not comfortable with. How do I attempt to help my guilty conscience? It's by doing what I can do, my works changing the way I think about trying to change reality from God's truth to my own truth. But none of these work. And they may appease a guilty conscience for a short time, but ultimately they don't work because we need Christ. And even if we are successful in doing these things, even if we're successful at appeasing our guilty conscience, that doesn't mean that we're innocent before God. We still stand under God's judgment, even if we have falsely convinced ourselves that we're all right. You don't need a Bible to understand that we are a broken people and to understand that creation itself is broken. The brokenness of humanity and creation is evident. Everywhere. It is evident everywhere. It's evident in our world, our nation, our city, our homes, and our own personal lives. We see that this world is broken. We see and we experience the pain and the sin of this broken world. Why are we such a broken people? Why is our world so messed up? Our world is broken because of sin. When sin entered our world, everything went wrong. Everything began to decay. Our bodies began to decay. Our morals began to decay. Our relationships began to decay. The planet and the universe began to decay. We live in a a messed up world. And I can't overcome my guilt and I can't overcome the problems of human brokenness by the formula of trying harder or comparing myself to others or removing the parts of the Bible that I don't like. The problem of our brokenness and humanity's brokenness is not solved by me or you. The problem is solved by Jesus alone. I have another slide, Alyssa. To find peace for our guilty conscience, the I must become Jesus alone. You and I need to remove ourselves from the center and remove ourselves from the solution to humanity's problems. And we need to put Christ alone as Savior. My Savior and humanity's Savior. Jesus is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So we need to remove ourselves from trying to save ourselves, trying to save humanity. Trying to remove this guilty conscience. In a place of ourselves, we need to trust in Jesus alone. And this brings us to Romans 3, 21 through 26. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do for you and what did he do for humanity? The Apostle Paul wrote, For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have sinned, I have sinned, and we all fall short of his glory. But verse 24 says, and are justified. That is, made right with God, at peace with God, declared right before him. We are justified by his what? Grace. As a what? Gift. through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a big word. Anybody in the room know what the word propitiation means? Probably not very many of you. To propitiate something is to appease divine wrath. Jesus Christ was put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice that appeased the wrath of Almighty God. You see, the wrath of God fell upon Jesus, upon the cross. His wrath should fall upon us because we deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The only way your guilty conscience can be healed. The only way you can have peace with God. The only way you can know that you have eternal life. Is through trusting in Jesus alone. Who went to the cross. Appeased God's wrath. By his blood. This is received by faith. And this, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over sin. You see, God, he is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. But God will not ignore or just pass over sin forever. Judgment must be served over sinful humanity. So he sent Jesus to the cross at the cross justice was served but not upon us who deserve it but upon Jesus who stood on our place and who suffered in our place, who shed his blood in our place, who died in our place. In verse 26 it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just so that he might be just He can't just pass over sin, overlook sin. Sin must be punished. So the cross demonstrates the justice of God so that he might be just and the justifier, the one who takes away your sin, the one who makes you right with him, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the very righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. But he sees the righteousness of his one and only son. And when God looked at Jesus upon the cross, all God could see upon Jesus was the sin of humanity. He took your sin and my sin and and he put it upon himself. And then in exchange for our sin, he gave us his righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a gift that's received by faith. And this is the central truth that liberated Martin Luther from a life of attempting to please a righteous God by his own efforts. When he discovered what righteousness really was, that righteousness is a gift given and not something that had to be earned, he was liberated. And This is the central truth that has liberated you from the guilt of your sin and condemnation under a good and righteous God. When Luther discovered this truth, he said he felt like a dog that had been chained up for a a long time but was suddenly set free. Martin Luther loved dogs, and I love dogs, too. There's nothing like the excitement and the thrill that a dog feels when they're set free, when they're let off the leash, and they're let out to run. The joy of their liberty is evident to all. How many of you here love dogs? You love them because of their joy, right? They love life. When you let them go... There is just this freedom and this liberty and this joy. Do you know that you can lock your dog in the trunk of the car for two hours and when you let him out, he's going to still love you. He's going to wag his tail. He's going to lick your face. He's going to be filled with joy and thanksgiving. Now if you lock your wife in the trunk of the car for two hours, (laughs) you get a completely different reaction. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you live in the reality of Romans 3, you live in joy. You live with freedom. You have peace. You're content. But if you're always focused on yourself, if you're always focused on your circumstances you're always focused on what you need to be doing in order to become a better person or to be right before God, there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no contentment. So if your life is void of joy and peace and contentment, it's not because you're not doing enough. church, I think oftentimes we just need to stop Doing and rest with our eyes upon Jesus, trusting in what He accomplished for us. So, who are you in Christ? Who are you in Jesus? Number one, you're loved, second, you're forgiven. And third, you're free. You are free in Christ. That is who you are today. Simply receive it, live in it, rest in it. That's who you are. You don't need to do good works to appease God. The work is finished, Jesus did all the work for us. It's like going to work. You know that you have too much work to get done that day, and there's no way you're going to get it done. And you show up at work, and you find out that your boss did all of it for you over the weekend. And then your boss says, all your work is done. I did it for you because I love you. Now go home and rest. That's probably never happened to you before, and it probably never will happen to you, right? That's not the way the world works. But God doesn't work in the same way that this world works. He does things completely different. It's finished. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're free. But, Pastor, what about our good works? What about our good works? Aren't we called to do good works? And if you preach a a gospel like this, aren't people just going to run wild in the church? Go out and do whatever they want? Have no concern for God's commandments? What about good works? Aren't we called to obey God's commandments? Yes. In church, this is the really cool part. This is the neat part of it. We obey God's commandments not to earn God's favor, or as if we're a slave under a a, a, a horrible, horrific, mean taskmaster. We obey God's commandments in joy in peace and freedom. We don't do good works as an act of propitiation, as an act of trying to appease the divine wrath of God. Jesus was set forth as our propitiation. He absorbed God's divine wrath on our behalf. We do good works in an attempt... We don't do good works in an attempt to appease a righteous God. But this is what the Apostle Paul wrote about our freedom. And this is what he wrote about what we ought to be doing. He says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13... He says, "...for you were called to freedom, brothers..." This is the freedom of the gospel. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve. Through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the joy and in the liberty of the gospel, we are set free to serve our neighbor. Martin Luther says that God does not need your good works. He doesn't need your good works, but he says your neighbor does. Your neighbor needs your good works. So our good works are not done to appease a righteous God, but our good works are done for the benefit of our neighbors. And after Luther was liberated by the gospel, he didn't just sit around with his brothers in the monastery and do nothing. Martin Luther went to work. Liberated by the gospel, he went to work for the benefit of others. He translated the Bible into the common language of the German people. He trained pastors to do their jobs better. And he himself came alongside ordinary people, everyday people, and he discipled him. He discipled his barber. Brothers and sisters, you are free in Christ. You are loved. Your sins are forgiven. Now take this freedom that is yours. Take this freedom and serve your neighbor. Find out the needs that exist around you and and give of yourself in love. And we have opportunities here at Maple Park collectively as a congregation together to show love for our neighbors. Tonight we're gonna welcome our neighbors. We've sent out almost 5,000 invitations for people to come into our parking lot. And it's my prayer that as they come here that they would simply sense the love of Jesus from this congregation, that they would sense the hospitality of this congregation. That when they come here they can know that this is a place that I can come and I can be safe with my children. This is a place that I can come, and people are friendly, and they welcome us. So That's one way, collectively, that we can live out our Christian liberty. Just a simple way, as a congregation together. Another way, as a congregation together, is the Walk for Wells. As we focus on a community in Chad, Africa, a need for clean drinking water, a need for the gospel, we can come together, collectively, To build a well so that people can drink clean water. And not only drink clean water, but hear of the living water that is given to them in Christ Jesus. We have so many opportunities to serve our neighbors in love. And we do it. We do it because we have been liberated by Jesus. And we want our neighbors to know Jesus and the liberty that is theirs in the gospel. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for setting us free. Lord, if our sins were recorded, for all to see, none of us would want that to be made known. But you know it all. And even though you know us, you know us not only on the outside but on the inside. You love us. You died for us. We're loved, forgiven, and set free. All is a gift of your grace. And we thank you for that. Help us to live in that liberty, to rest in that liberty. And as we rest in that liberty, help us to go to others, to love, to share, and to give of ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.